0: The book of Acts chapter 24, Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together. If you're with us and you don't have a Bible this morning, just wave to the men that are coming up the aisle right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that, a Bible, uh, that Bible a gift from us to you this morning. Acts chapter 24, verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in a certain order named Tertullus, and these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, "'Seeing that through you,' speaking to Felix, "'we enjoy great peace and prosperity "'is being brought to this nation by your foresight,' We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague, a creator of dissension among the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining Paul yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse uh, him." And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. And then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him, signaling permission to speak, he answered, "'Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship.'" And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, and nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. He was familiar with Christianity to some degree. He adjourned the proceeding and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or to visit him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage. We thank you for the glimpse that it gives us into church history and into Paul's life and into your ways and in, into um, the, uh, who you are, Lord, and the way that you work. We pray, we know your Bible is always speaking. It is a living book, but sometimes we have trouble hearing. And so we pray that you would freshly anoint us to hear your voice through your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul has been secreted out of the city of Jerusalem to uh, the regional capital of that particular province within the Roman Empire, and that capital city was by the name of Caesarea. And there as, as he comes to Caesarea, he's been sent by a Roman commander by the name of Lysias uh, to, uh, to bring Paul to stand before the Roman governor of that, uh, that region by the name of Felix. Lysias sent him out of, uh, of Jerusalem, not only for Paul's safety, but also for the peace and quiet uh, of the city of Jerusalem itself. Upon arriving in the city of Caesarea, the Roman governor, again by the name of Felix, he informed Paul that he would hear the accusations that had been made against him as soon as his accusers uh, arrived. Well, his accusers wasted no time, as we're told in verse 1, in coming to Caesarea to bring their case against the apostle Paul. We're told that just a mere five days after Paul's arrival at Caesarea, that Ananias, the high priest, other members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, probably of the more liberal ilk of, uh, of the Sadducees and so forth, they came forth to bring their accusations against Paul before uh, the Roman governor, uh, Felix. Uh, Ananias was, by the way, the same guy, the same high priest that just days earlier had ordered Paul uh, to be smitten in the mouth. Uh, for uh, alleged blasphemy as he stood before the Sanhedrin. They didn't come alone, as we see in verse 1. They were accompanied by a certain order named Tertullus. And Tertullus was, in the ancient world, what we would refer to as a lawyer today or as a prosecuting attorney. When it describes him as an order, uh, we get our word rhetoric from the Greek word that is translated order there. And it spoke of someone who was skilled in the art or in the science of speaking, of persuasion, whether orally or whether in writing. And so, he is an attorney, Attorney, and he is a high-powered uh, attorney. Uh, because of his name, he, we, it's a common name within the Roman Empire he is probably a jew and probably a hellenistic jew raised in greek culture very very familiar with both uh, jewish law and with roman uh, law he's probably a very high powered uh, highly reputable uh, attorney uh, in i'm sure it is i assume it is the case today uh, but it certainly was true in the ancient world not just every attorney was qualified Uh, to present a case in just any environment. So you might have a a small dollar amount civil case somewhere in the Midwest in the United States, and there's a certain attorney that has the skill set and the education and the life experience and so forth to argue that case. But it's something entirely uh, different that's required to be an attorney that makes a presentation before the Supreme Court of the United States. And so to be a lawyer that was qualified to stand and make an accusation or a defense uh, for a client uh, in a Roman court of law uh, reveals Tertullus to be quite an accomplished attorney. He certainly would have been the best that money could buy. Uh, Ananias, the high priest, and in the Sanhedrin as well. They had vast amount of money. They had turned Judaism into a money-making operation. They were not cutting corners in any way and trying to see what kind of an attorney they could afford. They found the man they wanted, and then they paid him whatever he would have required. In terms of Paul being responsible in this very scene for his own defense, I mean, you look at it and it's almost a David and Goliath kind of experience. Here is Paul. He is a rabbi. He is a tent maker. He is a missionary. And here he is up against this Tertullus who is really a legal assassin. It's important to understand in terms of the scene that Paul finds himself in the middle of here, they're not looking to put Paul away for five months or for six months or for six years or for 30 years the accusations they're bringing against Paul is with the intent that they would kill him, that he would be sentenced to death. And so just as they had endeavored to assassinate him, this 40 men that had sought his death in the city of Jerusalem, they now hire a lawyer who they hope can lay a case before uh, Felix, the governor here, that he will look at at. Uh, Paul and decide that he is a danger to the Roman uh, Empire, to its peace, and that he will order him killed. Uh, Felix is not a good person, as we'll see uh, maybe in a subsequent study. He's an awful human being and it wasn't anything for him to look at someone that he even suspected as being a rabble rouser within his part of the Roman Empire in which he was responsible for the peace of that empire and to simply have them executed for it. And this is what they're hoping for in, in, uh, in, in coming against Paul here in this particular uh, scene. Tertullus' uh, case is laid out. That he has against Paul, a Roman court hearings in the ancient world were very similar to the kind of hearings that we have today in uh, where you are in what is called a bench trial where the the case is not being heard by a jury but by a judge. And in the ancient world, the judge would uh, commence the, the particular trial. He would then give permission to the prosecuting attorney to lay his case down and then allow the defense to lay their case as well and then render a judgment related to the case. Upon receiving permission from Felix to begin to speak, uh, Tertullus does something that's quite clever. He begins by flattering uh, uh, Felix and then by promising to keep his comments uh, short, that he will stay uh, on point in terms of the case that he's laying out. Both of those things were a common introduction to any court case in those days. You would make the promise to get to the point and stay on point related to the trial. The Roman uh, court system wasn't uh, that excited, at least on a, a province level, with people, you know, showing off in terms of having trials drag on and on. You got to the point in those days. And then the trials always began with the attorney flattering the judge in some kind of a way, under the recognition that in order to win the case, you have to begin by winning the judge. And there isn't a human being in this room or in the world today that isn't susceptible to being uh, affected uh, favorably toward another person by virtue. Uh, of the flattery that they lay out. Tertullus lays out one layer of flattery upon another uh, upon Felix, so much so that I wonder if him, in listening to it, w- w- even rolled his eyes and thought, all right, enough is enough. Now, you've, is this a flattery or is this satire where you've gone on all of this. Again, as I said, he was a horrible human being, and he was nothing like how Tertullus describes him to be. If the Jews hated the Roman occupation of their land in the ancient world, and they did, the only thing that made it worse for them is when the Roman Empire put governors like Felix in place over them. They despised Rome, and they despised this Roman uh, governor who was judging the case. The case presented against Paul consists really of three principal accusations. Two of them are political. One of them is religious. The first accusation is made in verse 5 where Tertullus declares Paul to be a plague who starts dissensions among the Jewish population all around uh, the Roman uh, Empire. It's a very, very clever uh, tactic by Tertullus in all of this because he knew that the one thing that Roman officials had very, very little tolerance for and were very sensitive to were troublemakers within the empire. Anyone that was viewed as a person that stirred up the native populations or created dissension Uh, they would view them as an enemy of the empire. The second accusation that he makes is also in verse 5. He accused Paul of being a ringleader, ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And again, what Tertullus is doing here is very, very clever, and it's not lost upon Felix, and it's certainly not lost upon Paul at all. Uh, the language that he uses in describing Paul as a ringleader would have immediately gotten the attention of any Roman uh, governor, and, uh, and so Tertullus describes Paul in this way deliberately, uh, and, and it would have had a negative connotation certainly for Felix uh, because uh, of the political and the social instability of Israel under Roman rule, Rome generally did not like ringleaders of anything that threatened uh, to affect the uh, peace of Rome, the Pax Romana and no more nowhere else in the Roman Empire were they more sensitive to this than in the area of Israel. Notice, too, that Tertullus refers to Christianity as a sect. He calls it the sect of the Nazarenes. In other words, he's drawing uh, very deliberately, it's important to notice, he's drawing Felix's attention to the fact that Paul is not only the ringleader of something within the Roman Empire, but that he is the ringleader of a religion that is unrecognized within the Roman uh, Empire. It was illegal to establish a new religion within the Roman Empire without Rome's approval. So Judaism was a recognized religion within Rome. It was recognized, they were allowed to practice it within the Roman uh, uh, Empire. But Tertullus was saying, don't think that this Christianity or this uh, way, this sect of the Nazarene has anything to do with Judaism. Don't allow them to hide behind uh, our skirts and assume that this is one and the same things. It's not. This is a sect on its own, and it's one that is unrecognized within the Roman Empire. Now, this was a very, very serious charge and a dangerous charge for Paul here that's brought against uh, him And Paul understands it immediately because he spends the bulk of his defense uh, addressing this uh, very issue. So Tertullus began his case against Paul with these two political accusations uh, against uh, 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 Paul uh, in order to kind of gain the attention of Felix. His case is very, very weak against Paul. He knows it. Uh, Roman courtrooms were no nonsense places. You had to have witnesses. You needed to establish facts and so forth. He did nothing of the sort. He's dealing… all of his accusations are in generalities. He has no eyewitnesses that he brings uh, to any of the accusations that he's making here. And so he's doing what uh, any high-paid attorney is going to do in that. When you recognize that you have a very weak case and you lack the eyewitnesses or are unable to establish the facts that can produce guilt, you appeal to the emotion of either the jury or of the judge. And that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's dealing with Felix. Not on the basis of facts, but on the basis of emotion. He is appealing to Felix's emotions, principally the emotion of fear. If you let this guy loose, he's going to cause problems for you and for Rome. Be afraid. Be very afraid. And this is what's going on in, in terms of, uh, uh, of the court case. He then moved on to make his uh, final charge against Paul in verse 6, where he accused Paul of attempting to profane uh, the Jewish temple in uh, Jerusalem. And then he closed his argument with a series of uh, lies and and uh, presumptions, the lies being that Claudius Lysias had somehow rescued Paul uh, from their very benevolent hands as they were beating him to death. He failed to mention that, didn't he? We? we were just trying to judge Paul according to Jewish law. It was so passive, so quiet, when in fact they were attempting to beat him to death, and it was only they were the ones showing violence, not the Roman force that was uh, coming to rescue. Uh, rescue Paul. And then the the presumption, as it's recorded there in in verse 8, declaring that if Felix just simply would call Lysias to Caesarea to testify, that they were completely confident that Lysias would show up and, uh, you know, validate all of the things that uh, Tertullus had had just uh, spoken uh, here against Paul, that every, every accusation was true. What they probably didn't realize is that when Paul was transported uh, to Caesarea and, and to uh, the king here, or the, the governor, that he had also included a letter in, uh, in that letter to Felix declaring Paul's innocence of any wrongdoing. And so, uh, the Felix is aware of more than they realized. After which, uh, the high priest and all of the elders from Jerusalem, they all testified to the complete accuracy of everything that Tertullus had said there in verse 9. And it's awful to lie at any time. It's doubly awful to lie uh, in, a, in a court of law. It is uh, awful off the graph. Uh, to lie when a person claims to represent God and does uh, exactly that, uh, lying in a court of law. Paul then gives his defense, and he's allowed, uh, as he begins his defense, he follows the custom of the day by acknowledging Felix. But he can't say anything flattering about Felix, and he can't lie. He's a Christian. He has no interest in it anyway by personality. And so he tries to find something nice to say, and uh, basically he uh, expressed his gratitude for being able to lay his case out before someone who had been in the position he had been in for so long. Uh, Felix had been in the position he was in for five years. He had been in a subordinate position five years before that. He was very familiar with Jewish law, Jewish customs, Roman law, Roman customs, and so he wasn't a novice. He wasn't a newcomer. He would be able to listen to and see through whatever Tertullus had said, and and to see things for what they were. And Paul was confident in that, and so. He communicated it. Paul then proceeded to address each of the charges that were made against him, and it's really masterful. You have to put yourself in Paul's place. We won't bog down in it. I'll give some of you hope right now. But um, you have to put yourself in that courtroom and realize who Tertullus is and what he's trying to do to Paul there, and then to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Paul is not a trained attorney. Paul has not been away to a law school. Uh, he is a rabbi. He is a missionary. He is a—he um, is what he is—a great legal mind, to be sure, on a natural level. But nobody's briefed him on the charges that Tertullus is going to bring against him. He's hearing everything firsthand in real time. These are the charges. He gets it immediately. They, the, the first, all three of those charges are designed to get him executed by this particular Roman governor. And so he listens to things. He doesn't have a pen. He doesn't have a, a, a pad. He can't lay out a case. He doesn't call for a resource. But he hears everything that's being spoken, sees it for what it is immediately, and is immediately able to stand up and lay out uh, an overwhelming defense uh, for himself uh, related to the charges. And I think that a lot of this is way beyond just Paul's natural talent and and uh, innate uh, abilities. Jesus did make the promise, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we certainly see this in Paul's response. Concerning the charge that he was a creator of dissension among the Jews there in verse 11, he remind, uh, reminded Felix that he had only been in the land for 12 days since he had uh, come into uh, Jerusalem. And he had spent five of those days already in Caesarea, incarcerated. He had spent two of those days being transported from Jerusalem to Caesarea, leaving him with less than five days. And the point that he's making here is uh, those aren't nearly enough time for Paul here to develop or to promote or to initiate a riot among the Jews." Concerning the charge that he had profaned the temple, he responds to that in verses 12 and then 17 to 21. He declared that when he was at the temple or even in the Jewish synagogues or even in the non-religious sections of, of Jerusalem, he hadn't disputed with anyone. He didn't fight with anybody. He didn't argue with anybody. His activities while in Jerusalem had been limited to just bringing an offering for his nation and then worshiping at the temple in order to keep a vow of, uh, of purification that he had uh, vowed uh, to to make, and, uh, and he uh, declares all of, you know, the well i'll get to that in a moment he and then third Regarding the charge that of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, verses fourteen and fifteen, essentially he dismissed their charges of Christianity being uh, without any kind of identification with Judaism, which is what Tertullus was trying to do, and he did that essentially by declaring verse fourteen that he still worshipped the God of Judaism, he still worshipped the God of the Old Testament, that the God of Judaism and the God of Christianity Christianity were identical. In verse 14, he further declared that becoming a Christian didn't mean a departure from the law and the prophets or from the Word of God, but that his faith was firmly based upon the Old Testament Scriptures of the Jews, the law and the prophets. And it was precisely because he believed in the law and the prophets that he came to trust in Jesus as the Messiah. He further went on in verse 15 and expressed his faith concerning a coming resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust, a a mainline teaching for Judaism. And then in verse 16, he declared that he had lived a life obedient to the word of God and thus he could stand before them with his conscience being right before uh, both God uh, and uh, and uh, man and at this time when he declares his conscience to be clear you remember when he spoke that before the Sanhedrin just a chapter earlier uh, before them it was at that point that Ananias ordered him to be hit across the mouth for blasphemy but Ananias is in charge is not in charge of this trial. This is a Roman trial. He affirms the same thing, and as much as the high priest might have wanted him to be smacked again, he couldn't do it. He's not in charge of what is happening here. And basically, Paul, as he looks at the whole thing and, and, and makes note of what he trusted that Felix could already see but wanted to make sure that he did is, there's no proof here. There's no eyewitnesses. There's uh, Where are all the eyewitnesses to all of these charges? There are none because there's no uh, case here. They have no case. In other words, I'm not guilty of any crime at all. And so again, here is Tertullus. He's trying to get a conviction on the basis of innuendo, implication, emotion, and so forth. And Paul's defense is centered upon the facts and the rule of law. Felix's response. He decides to go ahead and adjourn the hearing at this particular point in time, promising to take the issue up again uh, when an eyewitness can arrive on the scene and and promise to call for Lysias, the commander, to come from Jerusalem and, and, uh, and speak to him related to the charges that have been laid out here and so forth. But he declared that in the meantime, Paul was to still be held in custody, but to be given great freedom for visitors to come and bring them uh, whatever it is that he might uh, need. It is uh, it is important to realize that ultimately, Lysias never comes to Caesarea uh, to uh, to uh, testify either for Paul or against Paul. Uh, Felix is is a very greedy man, as we'll see another time. He's not, he 's not It looks as if he 's being very political here, and he, he knows Paul is innocent, but he wants to hold him in custody just to keep the Jewish establishment from becoming more riled up than they already are and so he 's just in an action of appeasement, he also, as we 'll find out a little another day, is was hoping that Paul had a friend who was wealthy enough that might come and offer him enough money as a bribe for him to release. Uh, Paul. I'd like to use our remaining time here uh, that we have this morning to uh, notice a subject that the Apostle Paul, very interestingly, at least to me, I hope to you, that he brought up a second time in his many chapters here. Once in chapter 24, uh, I mean 23, again in chapter 24, uh, and uh, one time as he's uh, on trial before the Sanhedrin, and then now as he's on trial before Felix. And I want to talk for a moment about this thing called uh, conscience, because whatever Paul is referring to here as he speaks about his conscience, clearly it was very, very uh, important to him. And so let's begin with what a conscience is at least as it's defined uh, by the bible. The bible teaches that our consciences are is our conscience is an innate intuitive internal god-given knowledge of right and wrong. And that's what we're born into the world with, an innate intuitive god-given knowledge of right and wrong coupled with the realization that I should never do what is wrong, and I should always do what is right." When Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 12, 14 through 15, the apostle Paul wrote that every single person that is born into the world is born possessing uh, a conscience and possessing the exact kind of conscience that I've just described to you. And when we look all around the world, we see uh, the evidence uh, for us. Across all of the broad diversity of mankind and the cultures that exist within the world, everywhere you want to look, there is a uniformity of conscience that we, uh, all of us, possess. There is that uh, recognition that always, that lying is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that murder is wrong, and that conversely not to lie or not to steal or not to murder is always right. But one of the interesting things about our conscience is that the standard of our conscience is higher than our actual practice. Not one person in this room, not one person in this world, and not one person in human history has ever lived up to the standard of that conscience, of their individual uh, conscience. The standard of that conscience is a higher standard than the standard that we actually live up to. And what that does is it confirms that our conscience does not and cannot have its origin in us. It must have its origin in someone who is greater than us, someone who is higher than us, and as Paul declares, in God who has provided it to us. And so the conscience that each one of us has within our lives, this intuitive sense of right and of wrong, it testifies every day to us, individually, within our hearts and minds, every day it testifies to at least two great things. Number one, that we've been created by someone who is greater than us because we cannot ascribe our conscience to ourselves. And then number two, that at one time man was superior to what he is now, but that he has fallen from that higher place. And all of this just exactly as the Bible teaches. A further evidence that our consciences have their origin in God is evidenced by how perfectly it matches God's commandments in the Word of God, uh, in the Bible. In other words, Everything that is condemned in the Bible as wrong, if we practice it, it will produce a guilty conscience. Everything that is commended in the Bible as righteous, if we practice that, it will produce a clear conscience. In other words, both the Bible and our consciences come from the same origin. Now, someone might uh, protest at this point, and it's perfectly free to do that. Someone might think, I know lots of people who do all kinds of things that are wrong, and they seem to feel no guilt over that at all. And I know people like that in life as well. But to that protest, I would say two things. Number one, you don't know what goes on in the privacy of their heart. And the private life of regret that so many people live who do things that it looks like it doesn't affect them, it doesn't affect their conscience or their emotional or their mental health, and you never get to see the private side of their life to see the private price that they pay. It's also possible, as the Bible teaches, to sear a conscience, and that is to live a life in such violation of this intuitive sense of right and wrong, to live in such a violation of it that uh, it is to burn it to a place where it is past feeling. And that's why when push comes to shove, in in defining right and wrong, the Word of God always trumps our consciences, in terms of those definitions. If the Bible condemns something and I no longer feel conviction of wrongdoing when I do it, it's because I have seared my conscience in that area of my life. A healthy conscience will always be consistent with the Word of God. Now he speaks about a clear conscience twice in these chapters. And so what is a clear conscience? A clear conscience is what we enjoy when we do what is right in life. There's a result of that. and it's a clear conscience. It is to live uh, free from guilt. And this is what Paul experienced as he's before the Sanhedrin, now as he's before Felix. He has total freedom from guilt because he knew that he had not sinned against God or man in any of the accusations that they had brought against him. But as wonderful as a clear conscience is in life, there is something far superior to that, and that something is a cleansed conscience There is a clear conscience. That is fabulous. But something infinitely superior is a cleansed conscience. And the writer of the book of Hebrews spoke about it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, He went on and spoke about it again in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled or cleansed from an evil conscience. The reason that's important is because the problem that each of us faces, even those of us who sit in this room this morning... And we know in terms of our relationship with God and our relationship, present tense, with our fellow man, if we sit in, 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 in relationship to those relationships and we sit here with a completely clear uh, conscience in those regards at present in our lives, one of the things we realize, though, is that it hasn't always been true of us. I can have a clear conscience about who and what I am in the present moment, but at the same time be deeply troubled and plagued about some sin of my past. I have control over who and what I am right now in this moment in terms of a clear uh, conscience, but not over who I was and what I have done in the past." And nobody knew more about this than the Apostle Paul. He had held the garments after con- of the people who stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr in the church, and he had consented to the death of Stephen. He was as guilty of Stephen's death as ever if he had thrown a stone at him. And then he unleashes a persecution against Christians within the city of Jerusalem, imprisoning them one after the other and and hunting them down, treating them like animals, men, women, and children. All of this was a part of Paul's uh, past. And so with Paul, what do I do with my guilty conscience concerning my past or past sin? And it is a problem we all face because we all have a sinful, sin-filled past. There is none righteous, no, not one, the Bible teaches. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches. And then thus none of us can have a clear conscience concerning our sinful past. For our sinful past, we need and desperately need a cleansed conscience, the forgiveness of those sins of our past, the washing away of the guilt associated with them, And what we need is not cheap grace or cheap forgiveness or empty platitudes from people who don't know what in the world they're talking about because they're in the same boat that uh, we find ourselves in, waxing eloquent uh, about forgiveness, and the words hit us and roll off like water on a duck because they're just words in the face of the great need that all of us recognize within our life, and that is to have a real and a substantial forgiveness of our sins. And so, these platitudes, these sayings, the philosophy about forgiveness, none of these make a dent in terms of of the need that we have for forgiveness and the washing away of guilt. Nothing that is based upon man's word and eloquence can make any kind of an impact on it at all. And what we need is a provision. We need a sacrifice that is so awesome and so majestic in its source and in its substance that in comparison it dwarfs my sin and it overwhelms my sin and the guilt of my sin by its very presence. And the majesticness of that great act, the majesticness of this great thing that can put the guilt of my sin in its place and provide me with forgiveness. This is exactly what we have in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the picture or the type of Jesus' death upon the cross was known as the sin offering. It's spoken about in Leviticus chapter 4. 4. And the sequence of events went something like this. When a man or a woman realized that they had committed a sin and were guilty of sin in order to deal with that guilt and to deal with the guilty uh, conscience, that individual would then bring a lamb without any blemish to uh, the priest. As the lamb is there before the priest, the guilty party would then put his hand on the head uh, of of the lamb, the innocent lamb. And all of it was a picture of substitution, the transference of the sin of the guilty to an innocent sacrifice. And as this man then looked at this animal, uh, he knew that this animal was now going to die in his place for his sin. And the lamb was then slain before the Lord. The priest would cut the artery in the sheep's neck in order to produce a quick uh, death. And as a result, the warm blood would begin to flow uh, from out of the lamb. It would begin to then weaken from the blood loss. The legs would begin to buckle, and then it would collapse in death. And the entire ceremony was intended to horrify the person that was in the place of that sinner. It was intended to produce this profound sense of horror, this stunned sense of something need, seems to be uh, genuinely and terribly wrong about this scene that I find myself in the middle of. Thing, this seems to be exactly backwards, and it was in, the offering was intended to do exactly that in the guilty party. And as the man then stood before the tabernacle, here is a living young lamb standing there. It's breathing. It's innocent, all in one piece. And yet then before his very eyes, in just a matter of minutes, it is slain and bled and gutted and cut in pieces until it no longer resembles a lamb anymore, and all because of their sin. And yet somehow they got to continue to live. And in the privacy of the heart of that man offering that sacrifice, they would then ask themselves, how in the world is it that the lamb dies and I live? And there is blood everywhere in the scene. And the blood is everywhere, yes, to remind the sinner of the incredible seriousness of sin, but at the same time, that same consciousness of sin, whether, however great the sin might be or the sins might be, that the, the greatness of the sin would be slowly be swallowed up by and supplanted by an even greater consciousness that here is a sacrifice that is greater than my sin here is a sacrifice that is weightier than my sin. And all of it was just a faint shadow of Calvary. It was a preparation for Jesus hanging upon the cross one day of Calvary. And when that day began of Jesus' crucifixion, you remember Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's breathing, He's healthy, He's whole, He's innocent. But within a matter of three hours, He's hanging upon a Roman cross and His face has been so savage that He's unrecognizable for who He is. His body has been so brutalized that He's nothing but one great open bleeding uh, wound. And in the words of the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, so His visage was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. And when you look at Him, and you realize the one that hangs upon the cross is not merely a man, that would be horrible enough. But to realize that it is the Son of God, and when a person looks at the cross of Calvary and sees Jesus hanging upon that cross, it raises the great question within our minds, how is it that He dies and I live? And why does all of this transpire within us? Why does this internal thing happen as we view Jesus in that place? Because we recognize of the sacrifice of Jesus as we look upon Him nailed to that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. We know that deep, deep down inside of us and then you add it to the witness of the Holy Spirit Himself that all of the sin in our life any sin within our life, all of the sins of the world, all at once, uh, that this sacrifice is greater than all of it. And it is this knowledge that brings peace and cleansing to a guilty conscience. It silences it in the child of God. It satisfies it. It cleanses our conscience. And when we see Jesus hanging on the cross for our sins, we realize that no one got away with anything, that we're not talking about sayings or platitudes, we're not talking about cheap grace, that this is not an empty talking about forgiveness, this is a substantive addressing of my guilty conscience before God. And when we see Jesus hanging on that cross for our sins, no one because of the majesticness of the event and what is occurring there, no one can look at him on that cross and say about the sins in our life past and declare, my sin is greater than that sacrifice. The worst sinner in the world cannot look at the cross of Calvary and believe that about even their sin, because there's something about that cross that sacrifice, that scene, that Savior that overwhelms even the guiltiest conscience. And it gives it hope for forgiveness and for peace as it reveals to us here is a sacrifice and here is a forgiveness that is greater than all of our sins. And in order to cleanse a guilty conscience, God had to provide us with something that we recognize as being infinitely greater than all of our sins. And that something is the salvation that is found in the blood and the sacrifice of Christ. A cleansed conscience is one that is fully aware of every sin we have ever committed and the horror of them but is now even more, 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 far more aware of and dominated by Calvary and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. And the awareness of the majestic greatness of Calvary, even in the face of the greatness of our sin, works out like this in our lives when every reminder of the sin that we have committed in the past then turns into not a sea of condemnation and guilt and heading into the rapids of all of that, but that it then turns into a celebration within our heart of Calvary, of the greatness of God's love, of His grace, of His forgiveness where we cry out to God, Lord, a reminder of my past sin has come into my mind. It's going to sink me, Lord. I hate the person that I was. I hate that I ever did that thing that I did. But in the light of the price that Jesus paid on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, I refuse to rummage through my past and I instead choose to give you praise and thanksgiving and honor and glory for my Savior right now and the complete forgiveness that He has provided me and not just with a clean conscience but with a cleansed conscience. And if every time the world, the flesh, the devil, our own flesh, other people come and try to remind us of the guilt of our past, we turn it into a worship service in our hearts, then ultimately it loses power over us, and the devil's forced to realize that this attempted condemnation has backfired on him once again. And don't think the Apostle Paul didn't know an awful lot about all of this. It's exactly what he did with his considerable past sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, He wrote, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all repentance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He lived his entire life aware of what he had been at one time. But that was now under the weight and under the light of the majesty of the sacrifice of Christ. He said, however, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. And then He went on to say, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it is the sacrifice of Jesus that makes this possible in our lives. If you sit here this morning as a Christian, I think the Lord wants to speak to some number of us for whatever reason, the privacy of our own hearts, and the guilt of your past. Someday, some event, some week, some month, some year, whatever it might be, has begun to haunt you again. It's begun to plague you again. And the reminder that you never again have to have your eyes planted and fixed upon those events or that season in your life ever again. That God has provided you in His Son a place to lift your eyes off of the worst of sins that any of us could ever commit and onto something, the only thing in human history that can dwarf our sins and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And to put our eyes back upon Him, remembering, as Paul himself wrote to the church at Rome, that where sin abounds, and he knew something about it, grace abounds much more. And the idea is that grace hyperabounds. And when we think about the great, greatest sins that might be within our lives, it's possible to put an image within our mind of a a sandcastle on a beach, and there it sits for us to see and for the whole world to see. And we wonder what kind of a wave would require to come out of the ocean in order to wash that sandcastle away. Could there be such a wave that would do it? And then a wave comes out of that very ocean, and it not only takes out the sandcastle and takes out the beach, but it takes out 10 miles of the coastline, that is the grace that Paul is talking about. Our sin, as serious as it is and as big as it might be, it cannot compare to the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ and what we think He still sees or we worry about. He washed away long ago where sin abounds Uh, the grace of God hyper-abounds, and God wants us to be reminded of that today. There is something in human history as a Christian, and now in your life and in my life, that is greater than anything that we've ever done, and it provides us the freedom to live a life with a cleansed conscience. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian Think about the way that maybe you and the world deals with a guilty conscience. Everybody deals with a guilty conscience. We may not talk openly about it, But there's always the guilt, there's always the regret, and you see, I mean, if we were to have revealed before our eyes in terms of the drunkenness, in terms of the parting, in terms of the drugs, in terms of going from one activity to another, to another, to another, in order to silence the voice of guilt within my own heart and my mind and to look at how much of the frenzied activity and and, uh, and, 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 and activities in general of the world that we live in today and see how much of it goes back to uh, guilt and an attempt to silence it or to uh, outrun it or to to keep it from speaking to me, I think we might be uh, very, very astonished. And there's only one place to receive the forgiveness of sin and to be released from our guilt and to have our consciences cleansed That is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those very sins. And there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they would love to answer your questions and to pray with you to begin a relationship with God and to come into this kind of forgiveness and this kind of acceptance with God. And it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, for many of us who stand before you this morning, we know all about the guilt. We know all about trying to outrun it, trying to drown it in drugs or to drown it in alcohol or drown it in activity or drown it even in religion, and there was no answer for it, Lord. And we thank you that 2,000 years ago on that cross of Calvary in Jerusalem, that you were willing to give your Son in this profoundly majestic and beautiful and awesome way to provide us with the forgiveness of sins and that there is something, some stake in human history, some place, Lord, in human history, where even the magnitude of our sin and the greatness of the guilt that we feel is dwarfed in the light of the greatness of that sacrifice. We thank You for our Savior this morning. We thank You, Lord, for Your love behind that sacrifice. And we pray for one another this morning, for each one of our brothers and sisters that stand before you, and from whatever source, whether it's the enemy or the world or a loved one or a friend or even the condemnation of their own heart where they have spent recent days and weeks or months being condemned, Lord, by who they once were and what they once did, that all of that would be washed away and the greatness of your provision to them, Lord, in your Son. Let that fill, Lord, their entire focus and vision. We pray that this morning you would lift their heads up off of their sin and up into the face, Lord, and the love and the forgiveness that is found in Jesus and in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.